So why has Paul's letter to the Romans been so life-transforming for so many people? If you've been here up to now, we've spent a long time actually just introducing the letter one way or another. And one of the, one, we, we took half an hour a couple of weeks ago to just look at a whole range of people whose lives were completely changed. Indeed, not only their lives were pre- completely changed, but um, uh, the people we chose became a sort of seedbed for radical transformation in uh, um, whole cultures and whole periods of history. We looked at Augustine, do you remember that? And we, we said that in many ways he was the, he was the father of the, of, the, of the modern world. His understanding massively influent, was massively influential not only on him, but actually on the whole of uh, um, Western culture. Or Martin Luther in the 16th century. Um, he was reading Romans when he um, um, got converted and found his life turned around and indeed that, the new insights that he had through that revolutionised um, the, the Western world again. Or we saw Wesley in the 18th century, a time of uh, real social problems and so on. Wesley um, was reading Romans when he described his heart being strangely warmed and the transformation that came upon him um, uh, and and his preaching subsequently. Uh, Many say saved Britain from a revolution like the French Revolution. It was that radical in that in the tens of thousands of ordinary people turned to Christ rather than taking up um, a sword to overthrow the government. Or John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the second most read book in the English language after the Bible. It, it has been really, really influential, Paul's letter to the Romans, influencing all of those people. And the question we're going to start to answer um, Uh, this evening is why Paul's message to the Romans is so transforming for people. He um, gets to his main point in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 and we're not going to have time to look at some of the other things he says in verses 8 to uh, 15. We, We need to focus, indeed we're going to focus almost all our time just on verse 17. He explains in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. So for him, what he's going to talk about is the gospel. That means the good news. The gospel of God, he describes it sometimes. The good news about God. And he's acutely aware that though though it's important for him that others outside will in fact, mock it and reject it. He knows that it's very easy to be ashamed of this gospel. But he is not ashamed of it for a very important reason. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. This is an extraordinary statement. God's power very, quite often gets mentioned in the, in the Bible. But nearly always... It's, it's the power of God that, that comes directly from God. Sometimes in miracles, sometimes, sometimes simply in God, powerfully working in, uh, in, in people's hearts and so on. 
But here, he's saying something interesting and slightly differently. The gospel, the good news about God that he's going to explain to us is the power of God for everyone who believes. In other words, there's something that actually human beings have some control over. Understanding and, and teaching the gospel, the good news about God, that becomes, says Paul, the conduit, the source, the means by which God's power is exercised in this world. Most, most aspects of God's power we have no control over, but we have the ability uh, to understand what the gospel is and to teach it to others. And that is an awesome ability, says Paul. Because this gospel is the power of God. The power of God for salvation to absolutely everybody without exception. So he's teed up himself up very strongly in verse 16 to what he's going to say in verse 17 where he starts to explain what the gospel, what this good news about God really is. And he uses Three phrases in that verse that we are going to try to unpick this evening to try to answer, or begin to answer this question, why is this gospel and this letter to, to, to the Romans which explains the gospel in, in so much detail, why is it so powerful? The first phrase is... The righteousness of God. For in the gospel, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he mean by that phrase, the righteousness of God? Well, the obvious meaning that I think we would, we would take um, if we read about righteousness is righteousness in punishing wrongdoing. A judge is righteous when he judges correctly and he punishes the evildoer and he releases the innocent. And that is definitely uh, one part of what um, Paul means when he's describing the righteousness of God. Let me give you an Old Testament example of um, the righteousness of God being described. It's in Psalm 51 and I want to ask you to turn it up for a reason that I will reveal in just a moment. It's on page 573 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 51 is one of those, those great, central, um, uh, important psalms. It was written at a very, very important and terrible moment in Old Testament history. We see that in the, uh, in the preface. When David sinned with Bathsheba, that is, he, he, uh, she was another man's wife, um, and he uh, seduced her, committed adultery, actually ended up murdering, uh, murdering the husband as well. It was a pretty terrible sin done by the king of Israel. And he, he, he prayed this prayer. He wrote this psalm, a psalm of penitence, after that. And in verse 4, he says something which is reasonably straightforward for us to understand, uh, or at least some of it is. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge, or righteous 
in your verdict. And indeed righteous when you judge. Okay? So that's um, clearly the righteousness of God as a God who judges correctly between wickedness and innocence. It's pretty straightforward and God would be um, just and righteous, he says, to judge him. The reason that I've taken you to Psalm 51 is it actually combines in the same psalm another description or another side of God's righteousness that is really, really important. God has two righteousnesses in one sense. The other aspect of God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his promises. Um, God made promises. God said that he was determined to have a people for himself. And God is absolutely faithful to that promise. And so his righteousness in that sense, his faithfulness to his promises is associated with him having mercy on people who have sinned because there is no one who would escape God's judgment if he didn't have mercy. And we find it in verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Uh, you, um, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Now that would make no sense at all if he's saying, have mercy on me effectively, because I've sinned, and then I'll tell other people how you always judge sin. just wouldn't work. No, Psalm 51 is talking, at this point, he's talking about this other aspect of God's righteousness, God's faithfulness in, in uh, having mercy on all who call on him for mercy. And those two righteousnesses of God run down through the entire Old Testament, which is really one righteousness of God, God's faithfulness to himself. It shows in his faithfulness to his precepts, some people say, that is to his laying down of what is right and wrong, that he will always judge appropriately. He is righteous in that conventional sense. And his faithfulness to his promises that he has said he will save and rescue a people for himself. And those two um, are in tension in the Old Testament because it becomes plain David being a prime example, that there is no one who is righteous in a, in a way that, can, that, that means that God's faithfulness to his precepts will mean that they are saved. God's faithfulness to his precepts requires that everyone is judged and banished from his presence. How then can God be faithful to his promises? And it's uh, that resolution of that Old Testament promise 
those Old Testament promises that, that Paul is talking about um, when he speaks in Romans chapter 1, turning back to this righteousness from God that is being revealed. He will explain it in more detail in Romans chapter 3 and we're not going to go there this evening because we haven't uh, uh, got time. But in, in, in essence, he resolves that great conundrum in his heart through sending Jesus. God is determined that absolutely every sin that is ever committed will be judged. He is righteous. But he chooses to judge some of it in taking it into himself as God the Son, Jesus, suffers for our sin. And so he can be righteous in the sense of being faithful to his promises because he can forgive people now because our sins have been paid by Jesus. And so the righteousness from God is finally revealed and resolved in a way that the Old Testament never could really see. As Paul explains that then, he shows that God is faithful. That is why we've used that word as the word to understand Romans. He is faithful in judging every sin. He is faithful in forgiving um, sinners who seek his forgiveness because of Jesus. And that is massively massively important. Because you see, every other understanding of God simply has to say, well, somehow in the mysteries of God perhaps he will forgive some. That's, that's the Muslim way. They have this phrase, Hunchallah, if, if God wills. If God wills, he who is rich in mercy will forgive me. But I can't presume on it. I just have to live my life as best I can and perhaps God will. The Christian can say something quite different. Christians can say, I can be absolutely confident of that forgiveness and I can be absolutely confident because of this completely consistent God whom I serve who is utterly faithful to his precepts and his promises. And he showed his utter faithfulness by sending Jesus to die for my sins. And he promises in that same faithfulness that every single person who simply asks him for forgiveness, that person at that moment can be assured that all their sins have been paid for and God will continue to be faithful to them till the end. He is utterly faithful and consistent. And seeing that sets people alive. That is the righteousness, the faithfulness, the consistency of God that, is, that Paul is going to speak about. Second phrase that uh, Paul uses to help us to understand and to anticipate what he's going to be uh, uh, talking about. 
See that in verse 17? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Funny little phrase. It's literally a righteousness that is from faith to faith. What earth does he mean? Well, first of all, we need to uh, just clarify for a moment what faith is. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not believing what you know ain't true. Faith, um, uh, we, we did this when we, when we did Hebrews 11 on Sunday mornings, not so long ago. Faith is a reasonable trust in God. It is, it, it, it is a, a trust in God that says, I will, I will believe what God says. Actually, there's another dimension to faith, which becomes, is more prominent at, uh, in some, at some moments in Scripture. Faith is not just um, a trust, a sort of intellectual trust, though it is that. Faith is also a delight in those things. It has an intellectual dimension and a heart dimension. Listen to the um, uh, 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. Um, People believe the doctrines of God's word to be divine because they see a divine and transcendent and most evidently distinguishing glory in them. Excuses, 18th century phraseology. But he's, um, but I hope he makes himself clear. And a distinguishing glory in them. Such a glory as, if clearly seen, does not leave room to doubt of their being of God and not of men. Such a conviction of the truths of religion as this, arising from a sense of the divine excellency, is included in saving faith. In other words, a person doesn't, uh, who has saving faith, who has, who has faith in Christ, Christian faith, doesn't just believe a certain set of facts, ha- doesn't just at an intellectual level um, uh, trust those. At a, at a heart level they say, this is extraordinarily, wonderfully beautiful. Here, Here is a way of salvation. Here are truths about God that God has set before before me that that have such a beauty about them. Such a divine excellency, as as Edward says. That I just see it. My eyes have been opened to it. My heart is, is, is excited by it. And I find myself almost... Despite my will, putting my trust in those things, it just feels right. We'll see why that's a bit important in, the, in just a minute. But, but let's, let's get that, first of all, in our minds. Faith, Christian faith, is, is trust in God. And Christian faith is... Is, is, is delight in those truths that, that, that feeds that trust and, and confirms it in our, in our hearts. So what does Paul mean then by, a, by um, what he's going to, the gospel being from faith to faith? 
Well, as he unfolds his argument in Romans, he seems to mean this. He seems to mean this righteousness from God, this, this, this plan of God whereby God is consistent and puts us right with him, this righteousness from God, from us, in, 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 subjectively as it comes from us, starts with faith. I get right with God, I align myself with that righteousness of God simply through faith. Simply through seeing that it's true and entrusting myself to those great truths about Jesus and his death on the cross. And no other thing will put me right with God is needed as I start out my Christian walk than saying, I believe. Please, Lord, let the death of Jesus be for my sins. It is from faith. But the reason why he says it's to faith as well is this. As a Christian then walks from that first moment when they were right with God, as they, as they walk through their life following Christ, as they do battle with sin, as they seek to be conformed more to the likeness of Christ, the way that we are changed is actually again through faith. And here, in particular, through that delight in the divine excellency of these things, through that, through that sense that there is nothing more glorious than belonging to this God who has done this. And so, so that, that, that that heart response to God, which is also faith, transforms us from the inside. Paul is, Paul is right at the outside dealing with two potential dangerous heresies which have always troubled the church down through history. The one is this. The one suggests that you can put yourself right with God through your works. Through the good things that you do. Uh, for instance, at, uh, in, the, in the 16th century at the Reformation, um, that we already mentioned with Martin Luther, the current understanding was that um, what you should do is just do the best that you can that is in you. Do, um, they used, they like to speak Latin in those days, quod in se est, what is in you? There's something good in you, respond to that, and God will come in and you and God sort of can walk together and you can put yourself right with God. And Martin Luther took that and he said, okay, that's how I'm going to get right with God. And he was obsessive about it. He, went to, he, he confessed his sins 20 times a day. He, he slept on, the, on the hard uh, stone floors to try and subdue his body. He, he, he was obsessive about it, but he found that the more he actually tried to work with God in, those, in that way, the more it revealed actually the depths of sin and hatred of God in his heart. And he says, he came to hate God, not love him, as he did that. And he was set free when he realised that actually 
there was nothing actually in him that he could somehow bring to God and say, there God, look at this. Surely that puts me right with you. All he could do was come with empty hands. The old, um, the, 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 the Anglican um, uh, liturgy has the, 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 the um, confession as we come to the communion table there is no health in us. Some people say it's excessively morbid and yet it, and yet it strikes at a really, really important truth. We get put right with God simply through seeking his forgiveness with empty hands. Anything, any teaching that says you can bring something to the party to get yourself right with God is dangerously misleading. And the Apostle Paul wants to cut it off right at the beginning. The gospel, we, in the gospel we are put right with God from the first moment simply by faith, simply by trusting Christ. That's the first heresy he's dealing with. But there's a second heresy. Actually, a more common one that I meet. Actually, I have to say, the majority of evangelicals that I have met have believed this until I've pointed out how dangerous it is. Second heresy is this. That, okay, God puts me right with him by faith. But then, goes the heresy, he leaves me to get on with my own battle with sin. And that's entirely my responsibility. And the Apostle Paul's going to say, no. He's actually going to explain in Romans 5-8 to that someone who thinks actually their walk with God and their progressive uh, battles with sin is, is just something for them to do on their own. Someone who walks like that will be utterly defeated. There is a law, he says, deep within us, in our natural person, as, as strong as the law of gravity that drags us down, he calls it the law of sin and death. If you're left on your own, you are in big trouble, Christian. You will fail and fail and fail and fail. But the good news is that God also helps us change. He who began a work in us commits himself to continuing that work in us. And he does it through the mechanism of our faith, of our ongoing simple trust and delight in him. We'll see a lot more of that uh, leading up to Easter as we, as we go through it. But here he establishes it. You start out on your walk with God through trusting Christ. You continue on your walk with God and you are changed through trusting and enjoying Christ. That is the Gospel. Third phrase. Which is really an explanation or an addition to the second one as, he, as he's put it. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is actually a mis, if not a mistranslation, a misleading translation. So let me suggest a better way to read it. Um, 
in fact, the, the way that it must be read if you study the original. What um, Paul is saying is not the righteous will have a lifestyle of faith. He might have said that, but he's not, going to, he's not saying that here. He's saying those who are righteous by faith will live. Okay? He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, an Old Testament text. Um, which we haven't got time to, to look at, but he's, uh, he's pointing out this is what the Old Testament always anticipated. And this is what the Gospel is all about. It is about, first of all, we've already seen it, being put right with God through faith in Christ. Actually, that's the theme of what Paul will be unpacking for us in Romans chapters 1 to 4. But it is also about the life that we now enjoy having been put right with God. That's what he will unpack for us in Romans chapter 5 to 8. And it will be extraordinary good news, both of those. The second one in particular starts to describe the life that we now live. It is life that where God changes us by his Holy Spirit and it is life, as Romans 8 makes plain, that will continue on into all eternity with resurrection life that we enjoy forever. The Gospel, then, is the most extraordinary good news. We get right with God, and we continue to live through trusting in Him, His gift of righteousness and life. And those two gifts go together so intimately that those who put their faith in Christ find that God changes them. And they find that that life that he is infusing into them continues on into all eternity with resurrection life. This is, these are the truths then that we are going to be unpacking over uh, coming weeks and they are truly life transforming they set people free here is an absolutely faithful God who, who has never ever not kept a promise he is righteous and here is the way that that faithful God then takes ordinary pathetic struggling Sinful people like all of us and the whole world. And he puts them right with himself. And he gives them a new life so that they find joy and an ability to, deal, to overcome sin starts to well up inside them. And he finally gives them an eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. It is the most extraordinary good news. And as our eyes are opened, as our hearts actually resonate with that, and maybe your heart, I hope your heart has been resonating with that, as you see what Edwards described as the divine excellency of these things, then you are starting to experience what God promises to us. The good news. The gospel.